The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that may result from listening to this podcast. Scream Kings podcast. This is Max George. And I'm Nathaniel Darkish. We've been called ghost hunters, paranormal researchers, wackos. But we prefer to simply be known as the Scream Kings. We're back! For maintaining this rigorous release schedule. We've done a pretty kick-ass job for 2019. Way to go, Scream Kings. Yeah! We're doing the basic status quo of what people should expect from a podcast. And I'm proud of that. But in all honesty, it's been a lot more fun and it really kind of, I think, helps me at least think about what we're going to be talking about and really kind of almost stay on my toes. So if the bare minimum is what it is to to help me be more engaged, bring it on. And today's episode is something that honestly has probably been kind of long in the making. We're going to be talking about a really fantastic horror movie that is fairly modern um, and is really, really good. The Conjuring! And to clarify, we're just going to talk the first Conjuring film uh, this time around. Uh, We're going to cover The Conjuring 2 and then the rest of The Conjuring first in separate episodes. Probably, you know, to roll out within the next couple of months, cover all uh, all of those. But yeah, today we're going to talk about 2013's The Conjuring. It's November 1st, 1971. I'm sitting here with Carolyn Perrin, who, with her family, has been experiencing supernatural occurrences. You picking up anything in here, hon? Something awful happened here, Ed. What is it? And we kind of thought about that because The Conjuring 1 and The Conjuring 2 are very, very pretty well-developed movies. The plot themselves is very grounded. They deserve their own episode each. The rest of the movies... We're going to lump into a single episode. Yeah, because I have a lot of feelings about them, and they're not really positive. There's There are some high points in, in the rest of the series, but as a whole, <sighs> as you will learn when we actually cover it in depth, yeah, there's, there's a lot of problems, too. In fact, we're probably going to release that episode uh, in conjunction with the release of the third Annabelle film, which, by the way, a third Annabelle film? Good heaven. I know. Guys, the doll is not that scary. The doll is not that scary. But we will get into that later. Ugh. So let's let's rewind and talk about this awesome horror movie and why it's so good. Nathaniel, I have a lot to say. I know you have a lot to say. Let's conjure up some good points about the movie did you did you see what i did there no what what did you do from the last episode when i was like let's descend in i feel like i'm now going to try and make puns from here on out so everyone be prepared well we are both dads so dad jokes ahoy that's right all right so let's go what's your first favorite thing about the conjuring my very first favorite thing about the conjuring is something that I think you don't like as much. Uh, and that is that it starts out really strong. I feel like the cold opening with them sitting down with the very creepy Annabelle story, which I, I would say in this 
context, yes, Annabelle is is pretty solidly creepy. But yeah, I I thought the cold opening really immediately drew me in and and made me interested in everything that happened later. And I get that. I think I understand where you're coming from. However, I think this whole idea of Annabelle, I don't know. I feel like the Conjuring universe really latched on to this Annabelle idea. And as we'll get into a little bit later in the episode, the Annabelle mythos is not as dark and demony as these movies portray. And especially when The Conjuring first came out, it was the very first movie in the Conjuring universe. And so, you know, when I first saw this movie, it was on Halloween. It was really kind of, you know, the mood was right and it was spooky. And it, it opens up with Annabelle and it was cool. And I was like, oh, this is what it's going to be about. I know all about Annabelle. I'm excited. And then it went into a completely different story. And I was like, well, what the hell was that first part about? What did that have anything to do with the rest of the movie? Well, it was a cold open. I mean, what it did is that it immediately gave us something to be creeped out by, but not too overly scared by. But it also then showed us the Warrens being very confident. You know, you see them, they, you know, it's this really creepy situation, but they handle it. They handle it in one sitting. And so you're like, dang, these people know what they're doing. Which makes you think that, you know, kind of maybe the rest of the structure is that when we're getting into the haunting, that we're going to, things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And then finally, they're going to call the Warrens. The Warrens will show up and save the day. The end. And, and that is a great expectation to have as an audience because that expectation gets destroyed. And it makes the the things that happen later on in the film when the Warrens show up and then they're majorly out of their depth uh, that much scarier. So I think Annabelle works on multiple levels because one, it's a great hook and two, it sets up an expectation that the film then exceeds. And I guess I can see where you're coming from with that. But again, I, as a viewer and at the time I was just barely getting into horror, it was a little off-putting um, it, it just felt disjointed, and I, I just rewatched the movie today, and, you know, from that deeper cinematic level as a cold open and kind of this plot development and trusting the Warrens, I, I get that. I can see where you're coming from that, but mm-hmm. again, I feel like there could have been maybe a better way to do it. I, I feel like it's just a franchise ploy that there's this really creepy doll that they've developed which looks nothing like the real annabelle doll and which we'll talk about later i just it almost felt like a pitch for future movies that they have in their mind and they wanted to throw out this moment to kind of see if it would catch or not and and i guess that's what i'm saying is it is it felt like a cheap shot almost i feel like they could have done it maybe differently See, I I think that all of the resultant Annabelle stuff was simply because I think it just worked that well. And so that the the effectiveness of the start of the film then created a demand for, you know, it, it turning into a big franchise and, you know, being its own thing. I mean, I don't think that that's necessarily the right choice for the strongest uh, storytelling to result from, from this universe of films. But... I don't think they went in saying, we're going to make a thing that's going to you know, result in 30 spinoffs. I think what they did is they, they made as strong of an opening as possible, and people responded. 
for me, and I, I think in your notes you agreed with this, I think this movie is actually a really awesome period piece. Yes. Um, it has some incredible stylistic options. Um, it kind of blends our modern idea of what the 70s were like while still holding really true to what I have understood the 70s to be. Mm-hmm. Um, the cinematography also is really, really impressive. Um, a lot of the camera angles are really cool. A lot of the scares are really well thought out and generated really awesome. Overall, like the the style of filming, even to like the filters, you know, last episode we talked about the hue of the descent and how that was really off-putting. I think that is completely flipped on its head for the conjuring and it was done very, very well. Yeah, so along those lines, like I, I like that, you know, basically it allowed there to be a lot of natural light, everything was bright, and so when awful things happened, it was fully lit which made it that much scarier and so though i mean that's kind of you know when i was reviewing your notes it added up with my notes almost congruently but it's all kind of part of the same thing is that the filming and the cinematography and execution of the actual art of this movie is very well done and even the makeup of bathsheba uh, yes is really really good and i i love it because it's very simple but it's also very terrifying and i think that's what the conjuring universe does very well they have a lot of issues especially in the spin-off movies but the the makeup and the portrayal of the demonic and the portrayal of the supernatural is simple enough that it's not you know mythical beast like but terrifying enough that you know, a, an Annabelle doll can spin off three movies and Bathsheba terrifies you. So, I mean, one lines, especially like with the makeup, I feel like, um, especially when Carolyn is possessed, they did a great job of varying the intensity depending on what was happening. But they did it like very subtly, like, like you believed that, you know, the full on like creepy face during the exorcism uh, scene was just awesome. But then, you know, afterwards it it, it had some of the kind of the residue left over from it. It's like you could see that she had been affected. It had partially washed away kind of thing. And to piggyback off of that, too, is the possession of the mom was very gradual. It wasn't, mm-hmm. you know, like the exorcist with poor Reagan looking normal in one scene. And then the next thing she's just, you know, wart faced and throwing up pea soup at some points. Especially the first time I watched it, I remember thinking, well, is this actually possession? You know, the Warrens are fumbling around, not really knowing what's going on. And the family's breaking apart because they're so stressed. And it almost makes you think, okay, is this actual possession? Or And I know it's actual possession. There's been scenes of, like, supernatural activity. Or is it this poor mom just having a mental breakdown? Mm-hmm. And you don't see like the full possession, if we can call it a possession, I'll get into that later, happen until the very end scene where you get a glimpse of, you know, Bathsheba mom. And you're like, okay, this is real. We're here. We're doing it. It's crazy. Kind of going back briefly to the, the cinematography and, and like stylistic choices. You know, I like that it was a blend of modern and also 70s stuff like the the way that that some of the shots were set up felt like a 70s movie and other times it was a little bit like they they had more technology and so they used it and so i felt like it was a very natural blending of the two i've i've seen a a number of horror movies that you know will straight up film a a movie like it is you know the time period it's set in for example 
uh, House of the Devil feels like it was filmed in the 80s. Such a good movie. Why haven't we done an episode on that movie? We will do an episode on that movie very soon um, because it's so freaking good. I would say that this does that to a, a lesser extent, but it still pulls off those stylistic choices very well. And another thing I liked is just with how the camera would move, I noticed, especially at, near the opening of, of the movie, like when the family is moving in, that there were scenes where the camera would like swoop around like a ghost, like checking them out. And it was really eerie. Like, for example, you know, one of the daughters is bringing something inside the house and then the camera like ducks underneath a couple of movers who are like hauling a sofa and like like swoops underneath them and then like follows her around. And like I, I can't imagine the rigging they had to do to make that work that smoothly, but it paid off. It reminded me almost like kind of the opening of the Evil Dead, where, you know, you're zooming through this mossy swamp kind of a thing and you know you're the evil entity. And I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it harkened back to that kind of very visceral, scary movie and kind of was like, okay, here we go. This is going to be a scary show. Yeah, no, Evil Dead is exactly where my mind went, but I feel like they did it in a way that felt even smoother just because, I mean, they had a a much, 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 much bigger budget and much better technology. But I mean, not to say that uh, Sam Raimi wasn't a genius with what he was doing back then, but it, it's cool to see how they could take those same ideas that Sam Raimi was playing with, you know, back in the 80s, and then do it with a, a high-budget horror film. And that kind of naturally leads into something that we both really liked about the movie, was a lot of the tropes that they used, the scares, were kind of this healthy mix of new and a play on the old. Yes, and and along those lines, I feel like it, it took a lot of the things that you expected to happen, and it and it frontloaded all of them, and so that way they could get into the really good stuff later. The example being that you know a lot of horror movies will kill the dog, um, <laughs> and and you know you see the dog freaking out like right as they're moving in, and you're like, oh man, that dog is going to be barking outside in most of the scenes, and then near the end, it's going to get killed. And then, literally, the first night, they kill the dog. And you're like, holy cow. This is taking the things I'm expecting to happen, and they're all happening way sooner. So that means that I, I, I don't even know what, what is going to be in the second half of this movie, but it's going to be that much more intense than anything I expected. Bathsheba just knew what she was doing. Get rid of the dog ASAP. To kind of stay on that target, though, there were some very, very simple scares and tropes that were used in the movie that I thought were executed so well. You know, there's the hand clap scene where the mom is kind of in the basement. She Her light goes out. She's using these matches to kind of light her way back up the stairs. A uh, scene that was earlier on in the movie where the girls are playing like this like hybrid of hide-and-go-seek and Marco Polo where they clap to find each other. And the mom's at the top of the stairs. You see those two ghost hands kind of clap right by her face. And that's terrifying. And it's it's super simple, but it does an awesome job. And a, a similar scene is with the ball. You know, it's in the basement again, and this ball just creepily rolls out of nowhere. And I don't know if you remember, Nathaniel, but we watched this once for one of our uh, weekly scary movie nights. And we had a friend who just dropped one of the biggest F-bombs I think I've ever heard someone drop when that, you know, ball just kind of rolled across the floor. Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it, it it's because it's terrifying that there's a lot of intensity and a lot of of scare factor in something so simple and the soundtrack i think is another fantastic part of this movie um it, it reminded me a lot of the first insidious which the first insidious movie did a lot good well i mean it's uh, the same director so true um you know these really tight strings that are just you know playing one or two notes over and over and over very subtly and it oh it it just works they knew that it worked and they were letting it just work if that makes sense yeah in fact i'm pretty sure it's the same composer and i think the composer's also the dude who they actually used for for bathsheba and also lipstick face yeah so good on him unless imdb is lying to me that's all the case another thing i really like about this movie is that it's not loaded with cheap jump scares and so many big blockbuster horror films are i love a lot of the set pieces in this movie mm-hmm. like i love mm-hmm. that freaking creepy tree was fantastic and had a great payoff midway through the movie and the very best thing is is that um, exorcism scene where it they take all of these things that you associate with an exorcism and they turn it up a notch or 30 uh, with just how creepy they make everything in that scene. You know, yes, it's this like woman and she looks all just deranged and they're doing an exorcism, but then they have to put that sheet over her. So, she, so she's not biting anybody. And then the sheet gets all bloody and it tears. And so you see part of her face and that's haunting and horrifying and one of the things that stays with me after that movie to piggyback off of that i think it's very again very well executed and very well thought out because the first scene where bathsheba really possesses the mom again that possesses is a term we'll discuss later but it's a revolving the sheet you know lorraine is out doing the laundry it starts to get really stormy and windy the sheet flies off and it covers this invisible person for two seconds if you blink you're gonna miss it and then the sheet flies up and hits the side of the window flies away and boom there's Bathsheba and so it all kind of is this cyclical progression that I think is very artistic and very well done and by the way that scene just the little moment with the sheet probably my favorite part of the entire movie (laughs) it was good it was good I think the exorcism for me tops it all off but that is a close second yeah for me i'd say the exorcism is the scariest part of the movie for me but the sheet scene was my favorite part so just getting those out of the way now (laughs) i guess for me the scariest scariest part was when they couldn't find the little girl i think the terror of the parents and even the terror of ed and lorraine where they had this moment of like oh crap we've gotten into something that we haven't like done before especially that moment where the assistant dude like finds her and shouts it out and then she's like oh well i know where to go now right Ugh. right Ugh. and so that that terror for me was one of the scarier parts and that wasn't as supernatural as a lot of the other movies of course or a lot a lot of the other parts of the movie I'd probably have to say the exorcism, you know, that part you mentioned where the sheet is over her face and you start to see the blood and you get a small peek at the transformation that's happening. 
again that Ugh. sticks with you even after you see it so that might be tied both scariest and favorite part of the movie it's just a dang good scene something i also really want to point out is you know we are recording this in february it's still women in horror month i think there are some amazing actresses in this movie the acting was superb and also all of the female characters lorraine included were very able and competent women you know the mother is kind of the center point she's being attacked by this vengeful spirit bathsheba it was very almost like the descent where these women have to kind of band together yeah and and i really like that ultimately i mean mother's love gets a lot of uh gets gets a bad rap in horror because it it solves the so many problems but i like that it was you know like a genuine relationship with her children that ultimately was how she got pulled out of her possession and and you know kind of saved the day the, the day was saved because of her her love for her daughters I, th- I thought that was a very genuine moment and and yeah i like that it wasn't just that like oh yeah the exorcism worked just because they sure did that ritual right it was because there was a, a personal element to it that had to do with her strength as a as a mother and just you know as a, a woman and in general and i agree i love it when possession movies don't use the typical religious exorcism to be the ends all to the problems. Um, And we're going to get into this a lot, you know, with our really exciting interview with Grady Hendrix in my best friend's exorcism, because something similar happens. And so that was also really refreshing. And one of my favorite parts as well, to see that it wasn't religion that saved the day. It was the power of familial love. Yes. Something I want to mention, and it's kind of in the universe as a whole you know, we have Conjuring 1, which is about this very famous Warren's case. We have Conjuring 2, that's also very famous Warren's case. Probably the most famous Warren case is the Amityville Horror. I would love it if Conjuring 3, kind of the wrap-up, you know, this trio ends in Amityville because we don't have a great Amityville movie yet. Well, I mean, I but, feel it, like... but the Conjuring 2 starts in Amityville. I know, but I want more, you know? I want mm. I want that story with the Warrens. It's never been done before in a good setting. I don't like Amityville. I think it's dumb. <laughs> oh, I do too. I do too. But it's a classic kind of horror story of America. There's got to be a better way to do it than Ryan Reynolds. <sighs> well, I mean, he did it second, so. That's valid. That's valid. Let's talk about some things we did not like about the movie. Okay. Yeah, I have a lot. <laughs> I don't have a lot, but I had more than you did. <laughs> okay. That's fair. I, I think um, I put down like one thing. You did. So let's maybe talk about that first. <laughs> okay. Um, so I felt like the sidekick characters, um, so the cop dude and then the college student dude with all of the tech knowledge were kind of just random. They didn't add okay. that much to the movie. Yeah, they were just kind of there. Like, I mean, they, they contributed in some scenes, but as a whole, they could have been cut. And I think the movie would have been just as strong, if not stronger. You know, you and I talked about this briefly before we started recording. The Conjuring, for me, is a very solid movie, and it's kind of the next step. You know, we've talked a lot about gateway horror movies. This, I think, is that next level of really good scares and it, it really set the precedence for me for modern horror as what a solid horror movie should be like. 
and yet it still failed with this idea that these sidekicks have to be these mindless monkey drones who are kind of idiots and don't really know what they're doing. Well, I felt like the the college student, like he actually knew what he was doing, but like the cop, yeah, he was he just was there for, I guess, comic relief sometimes, occasionally for some muscle. I just like I I was genuinely confused why he was even there though. Like he he was a skeptic. He didn't believe anything. So why did he show up? Like why why did he spend hours and hours of his time? in this house if he doesn't believe any of this like it was it just didn't make sense to me and i guess that's kind of where i was going with the sidekicks trope is that they're just kind of useless they had they served no real purpose and you kind of touched on something that was another part that i didn't love where that there were these little bizarre nuggets of kind of humor kind of not humor that yeah it felt really awkward it felt really unnecessary to anything related to the movie regardless if i didn't like the cold opening or not that really set the precedence that this is going to be a serious scary dark movie and if that's the case let's stick with it from start to finish we don't need these little blurbs of comedic relief i will argue with you on that one point in that i feel like um humor is actually extremely effective in horror in that it makes the if you have a brief moment of a, a release intention and then uh before going back to more awfulness it usually makes the awful thing seem even worse but i would say so so i, t- I take uh argument with your premise there but i would say the effectiveness of these guys as as comic relief was just not there at all occasionally horror movies pull that off where it's just dreary from start to finish and and it still works but that's the exception to the rule and you see i think that defines a good horror movie is if it can continue to make you tense i mean think of hereditary there was no humor in hereditary and i was scared from the start to the finish yeah i think hereditary is honestly the only movie that i can think of that actually does that successfully I would say, almost without exception, the rest of of horror has at least occasional moments where you laugh, even if it's laughing nervously, because you need that as an audience. Hereditary is just a different beast altogether. And I mean, I I agree that the, the humor is kind of this pause and this relief to kind of get back into the darkness. I just think this movie didn't do it well at all i agree i agree another real hard thing i had with this movie is you know me i'm all about my demons and this wasn't a demon yeah no i agree wholeheartedly it was a witch um and i mean that can be another topic you know if if people can be so evil in life that when they pass on if they do become demonic entities but another thing I had a real hard time with is when we finally are revealed that this is Bathsheba, she's this witch, the entire plot of Bathsheba was given to us in like two minutes. And she's just this land-hungry wench who doesn't like people on her property. Yeah, it's basically she she sold her soul to Satan so she could keep people off her land. What? Yeah, it, it kind of reminded me of like a Mr. Burns from The Simpsons. <laughs> it's just this like power-hungry entity that's just so greedy that it won't let anybody on its land. Like, uh, the demon, uh, the witch was well-executed in makeup and, and the possession, 
but the purpose behind it was there's just no depth as a villain you know when lorraine was giving the background of it she was just like oh my gosh bathsheba had a child and within seven days was in front of the fire pit sacrificing this baby and then ran up the tree and hung herself and praised satan at 307 in the morning it was just like okay is this not can this be more stereotypical (laughs) it's just i don't know i struggled with that a lot yeah well I, I guess I just, yeah, ultimately just take take issue with the idea that if if you're doing something as radical as a child sacrifice to gain the or like gain the the regard of Satan, then wouldn't you, I don't know, want to do something with that, other than just kill yourself and then haunt well, your land for the next hundred years? And there was a really good scene with Lorraine and the mother where Lorraine was talking about how. You know, the bigger sin was that this woman used her God-given power to create life and then kind of blasphemed against God by killing the baby. There's mm-hmm. a lot of depth and a lot of reality to that in the early puritanical kind of witch hunts. Yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe we're going to get into that. Okay, we're not. Okay, cool. It really worked well in terms of giving us a modus operandi. Of, of you know how she was moving how she was like oh yeah she basically whenever there's a mother like it's gonna kill its child like that's what she makes them ha- do which is very scary but yeah True. It, it works only on that end it doesn't really work on the end of why does she gain even more power with satan in the afterlife by right. doing that over and over again because you don't get that vibe you just think like yeah they're basically just like yeah she just doesn't want people on her land really <sighs> it just yeah um, another part I had some issues with, it's kind of twofold. One, I don't know what it is, but I've seen a lot of horror movies lately that when the final possession occurs, it's like the ghost, the demon has to vomit blood or vomit its essence into the other person. I've seen it a little bit and I don't get it. I don't know what purpose that is. Um, it it kind of reminded me of Evil Dead again. Yeah, it kind of worked... Like, yeah, from an, an Evil Dead standpoint, it specifically made me think of uh, the the Evil Dead, the, the recent film. Um, yeah. And, like, I thought it worked there because, I mean, deadites are kind of a little different than, you know, conventional ghosts or demons. Well, and that was a rape. It wasn't... Yeah. Like, that, I think, was the horror with that kind of a possession is, you know, it was... When you think of demonic possession, it's a spiritual rape that this entity is penetrating into you, and I use that term very deliberately, without Mm -hmm. your permission. And so I think the Evil Dead, that scene, had a lot of double entendres that were going on, and it was very well executed and very purposely executed. Stuff like The Conjuring, I don't don't get it. There's no purpose. I I think, honestly, what it really boils down to is it's really freaking gross to see like oh totally it is and 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 so it's going for so so stephen king regularly talks about how there are three types of horror there is terror uh which is like basic like it, it, it's the the big kind of like psychological horror uh there is horror which is like hey like i i feel afraid for my life kind of stuff and then there's the gross out and the gross out is the cheapest and it's the easiest to do. And, and and he says that, you know, good horror has all three of those things, typically. But 
um, I feel like, yeah, when, when we have the ghosts or the demons vomit in someone's mouth, which, yeah, we see it over and over and over again in, in recent horror, it's just because it's it gets a reaction from people, and I don't think it's necessarily super effective beyond getting a gross-out reaction, but that's, I think, all they're really going for. And again, I don't want to go back to hereditary because we need to stop talking about hereditary (laughs) but we can't um that kind of possession that you know payment came through a light like it's so simple it's so benign and but at the same time it was so malicious that's what i want to see more of and uh, i don't know i just felt like it was cheap i agree and I think that if we keep mentioning Hereditary at the rate that we do, we might have to change our names to Scream King, a Hereditary fan cast where they occasionally talk about other stuff. I just want to briefly touch on one other thing uh, among the, the lowlights of the film. Just in that, I, I felt like the the use of Annabelle later in the film and, and that like Bathsheba was like reaching out to her through the, like I guess, link of these uh, lockets just didn't work for me it was okay thank you thank you i forgot about that point that's why i felt the beginning was more of a franchise pull because they had to bring in annabelle again this creepy doll that they've envisioned for it just made no sense to me what did it have to do with the parent family i i think honestly what it really boils down to is they set up annabelle as really creepy at the beginning from a writing perspective, they're like, oh, that kind of like left a gun on the mantle. Maybe we should use it later. I felt they kind of were obligated to use it. But yeah, it just didn't work. I think they could have cut that and still had the, the Annabelle beginning. And the Annabelle beginning would have remained strong, at least for me as a as a watcher. Yeah, we could have cut that the other part. And, and it, doesn't, it doesn't have to come full circle with Annabelle. It, because she didn't really add anything other than one creepy scene. And, it wasn't and I that think great. that's that's the key to my disgust with the opening, Nathaniel, is had that middle part not been there, the cold opening, I think, would have been stronger. Yeah, um, I agree. But they tried to relate the two. And, and I think that's where a little bit more of my discomfort came was, what's going on? Why is this important to the movie? Let's get back to the family. So I agree. I, yeah, I mean, I feel like they were just saying like oh well maybe we can use this to threaten the warrens directly as well and like i get why they did that but i just don't feel like it paid off well enough to justify having that big of a departure from what's going on with the parents especially because what was going on with the parents was actively like really messed up and terrifying so now screams and crowns for me i'm gonna give it a seven on screams and a seven on crowns Like I said, I think it's a step above a gateway horror movie. It's very well developed, very well executed. Um, It will scare you. uh, It will stick with you. But I've been more afraid in other movies. Yeah. Um, I would say Screams, yeah, I'm going to give it a 7 as well. Uh, Crowns, I'm going to give it an 8 just because of all of the, the stuff that we talked about. I mean, there are a few flaws. Obviously, we just went over them. But as a whole, it's a really solid movie. Like I, I rewatched it, you know, I probably watched it five or six times now and just rewatching it last night. I was like, man, like this is a well-constructed film. Like I am really pleased with it. So um, I would say it's, it's probably James Wan's best movie. And yeah, I, I, I really dug it. It's, it's an eight for me there. 
And I actually liked Conjuring 2 quite a bit more than Conjuring 1, so I'm excited when we get to that. They're they're close for me, but I think the first one's the, the winner for me personally. Okay, so let's maybe launch into a little bit about the Warrens themselves, and also the some details about the real-life Perrin case. Sure. So the Warren family, if you are family, that kind of sounds weird to even say, but they are a family. Um, the Warren couple. If you are, f- yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Warren, if you are a fan of horror, you know who this couple is. These guys are some very, very preeminent researchers as far as paranormal activity goes. Um, Ed Warren was born in 1926. Uh, he went into the Navy and got really sick and so actually left. And he was supposed to go back, but in between coming home and going back, he actually met Lorraine. And Lorraine and, and going back really... would be going back to the war, right? World War II, right? Yes. Lorraine is actually, of the two, the more, I would say, supernatural. She's considered herself to be a medium ever since she was very, very little. Has felt very closely connected to the spirit world. Ed, on the other hand... Uh, is actually self-taught. He is a self-taught demonologist, which I think is pretty cool. I, I would like to consider myself a self-taught demonologist. <laughs> and he, they really kind of created this paradigm where they were able to work these supernatural cases and had a good viewpoint with Lorraine where she would kind of be this mediumistic conduit for supernatural. And then you had Ed, who was more the logical... Let's figure out how to get over this and work through it. And so I think that really set the precedent for their future. Mm-hmm. Do you want to kind of talk about what they established up in the New England area? Yeah, so I don't know tons about it, but but they were the founders of the New England Society uh, for Psychic Research, which is the oldest ghost hunting uh, group in New England. That's about all I know about it. I didn't fall down that rabbit hole quite as much as I uh, wanted to. But I think it's really cool yeah, yeah, that, that they still have this very lasting thing today that is all about that, all, all about the creepy stuff. And that really kind of jettisoned their careers into the supernatural. The Warrens are very, very ubiquitous when it comes to paranormal research. They've done a lot of presentations. They've written lots of books. They've been, you know, if there's a big haunting in America they've probably been there mm-hmm. um ed warren died in 2006 and so lorraine really kind of took the reins for the last few years um even to the point where she's been at comic cons and you know the whole conjuring universe that's been developed has really again kind of put them in the the spotlight uh unfortunately that spotlight comes with a lot of criticism and we will kind of dive into that a little bit more when we talk about the rest of the the conjuring universe yeah, especially because a lot of the criticism does specifically come from their involvement with Amityville and also with the Enfield haunting. Yeah, and and honestly, even the Perrin family, there's a lot that kind of came out in the later years that doesn't really jive with what they were telling. Mm-hmm. And I think the biggest thing we kind of wanted to talk about on this episode was the Warrens' extensive kind of ideology that once they figure out something supernatural... They just hold to that idea and run with it. There's no other explanation. And Ed was pretty notorious for that. The research I did, he 
uh, you know, when they found out about the Bathsheba story with the Perrin family, he was convinced that that now was the case. And there's no other way to get rid of this entity other than a Catholic exorcism. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you can definitely see a lack of the scientific method there where it, it, instead of like having a theory and then, you know, doing some stuff to test out that theory... Instead, they would have a theory, and then, oh, that's it. Like, they would just assume it was correct, and then proceed, which is highly problematic from a scientific uh, point of view. And I, I do want to go over just a few of their kind of more notorious cases, and maybe I'll let you talk about the Perrin family specifically. Obviously, that's what Conjuring 1 has been kind of based on. Annabelle, of course, probably their first and foremost big story. Um, Amityville was a huge thing for them. Uh, Einfield Poltergeist, which was in England. Uh, they also have the Snedeker House, if I'm saying that correctly. It's what a haunting in Connecticut was actually based on. When I say mm -hmm. actually based on, I mean very, very loosely based on. Um, and then you also have a really interesting story where they had a subject who was possessed by a demon, but it was actually a werewolf demon. I remember which... reading about that. Yeah, it's interesting, and it's actually going to be the topic of The Conjuring 3, so it will be kind of bizarre to see how they do that. And again, it comes down to, is it really a demon? You know? Yeah. So, I have some fun tidbits. Uh, so, I, I've read the book The Demonologist, which is a book that covers kind of their career in, in really broad strokes. I don't remember all of it super well. Uh, but there is one thing that really stuck with me, and it was from the Perrin family uh, haunting that I thought was really cool and I wanted to share. There was a, a, a moment in the the haunting instance where, or yeah, during the the big haunting event, I guess I don't know how to describe it, uh, where the parents were at a party just you know kind of down the road, and some weird spooky crap started happening at the house, and so the girls ran um to go get their parents and they're running down the road and they said that on the side of the street that their house was on all the birds were like freaking out just losing their minds just squawking and chirping and just as you know there's there's hundreds of birds and they were all just super freaking out and it's like late at night it doesn't really make sense for them to be doing and then on the opposite side of the street, there is nothing. And so they said that it was like running almost... I mean, how I imagine it is like running with just a single earbud in. And uh, it just is a, a really unnerving image to me that I think it's a shame that they can incorporate into the movie. Huh, that would be fun. I think they would have to do some really creative sound mixing stuff, but it was really creepy to read about. Do, do we want to talk about how the real Annabelle is a raggedy am? Oh, yeah, and you are, like, terrified of it. It just gives me the ghiblies, okay? It doesn't help that all the pictures of it, it's in the, the really creepy box that says, like, warning positively, do not open, which is, by the way, weird phrasing. Um, but, like, it's always, like, these really ugh, unpleasant pictures of it. And I don't know, it just has made Raggedy Ann dolls, which I've never been that big of a fan of that much more unnerving because i'm like oh they're real annabelle's at raggedy Ann. maybe they're all evil 
And maybe that's kind of where my distaste for the cold open was for this movie is because I knew the Annabelle story beforehand and I knew it was this like innocuous raggedy and all. And so when I first see the cinematic Annabelle, I'm like, okay, this is a little much. But yeah, it, it's just this, this doll that looks just like any other doll that you would find anywhere else but has this crazy dark mythos behind it that is just crazy. Yeah, and and I think, like, for me, the everydayness of it being Raggedy Ann doll contributes to how creepy I find it, but I get that they wanted to sex it up a little bit, you know, make a a creepy porcelain doll. I, I get the choice. I personally find the original more scary, but, you know, I get it. It definitely is iconic, Shit, to say the least, four movies later. And I'm sure they would have had to pay licensing fees to use a Raggedy Ann, so I... <laughs> not that they're lacking for money, good heaven. Yeah, seriously. I did want to mention a little bit about the real Bathsheba. Yes, I want to know. Um, So, Bathsheba Sherman, who is titled in the movie to kind of be the, the main haunting character, was a real person. Uh, she was born Bathsheba, Bathsheba Thayer in Rolled... Ro- I can't talk all of a sudden. Ugh, must, be, must be Bathsheba or Pazuzu's back. No! <laughs> Stop breaking our internet, Pazuzu. <laughs> she was born Bathsheba Thayer in Rhode Island in 1812. And she married an actual fellow Rhode Islander, Judson Sherman. Um, and so that's she became Bathsheba Sherman. There's not a ton of information on her. Um, she did have a son who was born when she was approximately 37 years. Um, it's possible that she had other children, but again, the documentation isn't very well developed around this. Um, she did have a child who did not live past the year of seven. And that's kind of where the weird story started. This was a very turbulent time in the United States. A lot of the crazy witchcraft stuff was starting to happen now and a lot of her neighbors accused her of witchcraft and accused her of actually killing her child and um when they looked at the child who had been murdered they found these weird innocuous kind of holes in the back of his skull almost like the skull was sewn with a needle um and again the documentation doesn't really have a whole lot of information and again 18 you know 49 is probably not the best scientific evidence kind of reminded me of when you read about early corpses being identified as vampires it's natural decomposition that's happening um and so that was kind of the big revelation when the Perrin family was explaining kind of the supernatural experiences that they were having to the warrens is the mother commented that she had the sore on the back of her head and when lorraine looked at it it reminded her of someone who had been sewing uh and kind of a an injury that would be similar to that of using a sewing needle if that makes sense that would have been a lot better than you know like the ouija movies useless sewing stuff that that actually (laughs) would have been creepy if they incorporated that so in the real parent haunting when lorraine warren found out about the bathsheba situation happening 
not even on the house site, but in the perimeter, kind of in the area, that's when her and Ed were like, oh, it's got to be Bathsheba, you know, and just took it and ran with it and, and ultimately made it something that it probably was not. So, yeah, that is the story of Bathsheba Sherman. I think we've kind of hit a lot of the points I wanted to cover on the Warrens. Yeah, I mean, we've got a lot more that we'll talk about, especially the criticism. Yes. Once we move into a few of the other movies, because there's a lot to talk about. And unfortunately, the Warrens are kind of like the Necronomicon and kind of like Ouija boards, (laughs) where they're a great pioneer in the field of supernatural stuff. But when you look behind the curtain, there's not a lot there. Yeah, but we'll we'll dig into that more later. Oh, I guess one one other thing I thought was fun, just relative to the creation of, of this movie, is that Lorraine Warren served as a consultant on the film, and actually Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga both like met with her for a while to kind of get a feel for how they wanted to play the characters and, and you know how they could kind of be true cinematically to to the real life people, uh, and also the uh, Perrin family actually visited the set. Uh, while they were filming and uh, got thoroughly creeped out because I guess the they built the house, at least the you know the, the set for the inside of the house, as close to the uh, actual parent house as possible. So they're like, oh, ew, that takes us back. So anyway, I thought that was fun, fun. to walk down memory lane. All right. Well, I think our biggest news that we have now as we wrap this episode up is definitely be on the lookout for our exciting interview with Grady Hendrix that's coming up this coming Tuesday. Yeah. Very excited for that. Or, or to clarify, we're going to interview him on Tuesday, and then I will edit the episode, and it will probably be released as part of our normal schedule. <laughs> yes, yes, sorry, that's what I mean. But it will be our next episode after this one. So expect it two weeks after this one drops. It will be amazing! I'm very excited. Any any other news that we need to cover? I don't can't think of anything. I guess other than there's going to be a bunch of other interviews that'll be coming up. Um, I'm not going to go into all of the names, but uh, I recently attended a writing conference and asked a bunch of cool horror people to to get involved, and everyone was super nice and said yes. So expect a number of of interviews. I think all of them will be super interesting and fun and worth listening to. Another one that's coming up is we're going to have quite the debate on do aliens exist? Yes. So get excited for that in, in the docket as well. Uh, yes, it will be it will be awesome. We've got a lot of good things lined up. And now that we've kind of have the set schedule, you're going to get a lot of screen kings. All right, friends, stay spooky. Stay spooky. And oh, can I, can I get a clap? Need even more screen kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Screen Kings Pod. You could also email us at screenkingspodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to patreon.com forward slash screenkings. Stay spooky.